This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hi, I'm Steve Sharetta, Senior Managing Editor at Knowledge at Wharton, and I'd like to welcome Vincent Reina, a professor of city and regional planning here at the University of Pennsylvania, to speak with us today about the issues of affordable housing. Thanks for joining us, Vince. Thank you for having me. Um, Professor Reina has recently completed a briefing paper for the Wharton Public Policy Initiative titled, The U.S. Needs a National Vision for Housing Policy. The paper looks at improving housing affordability and fairness for renters and owners. And Vincent, I have to say, I, I think a lot of people may be surprised by the findings in your paper. Most of us see the economy as having recovered quite a bit from the Great Recession, including the housing market. And they probably don't realize, uh, as you put it in the paper, I'll quote here, rents and rent burdens are at all-time highs. House prices are out of reach for many households. The available stock for sale of for sale units in many markets remains low. And there's an uncertainty about what home ownership rates will look like for future generations. Also, uh, rising rents have exasperated other problems too, like tenant displacement, homelessness. Uh, but policymakers haven't done much or have done nothing along those lines in, in response to the country's current challenges. So could you outline those challenges, which are perhaps a lot bigger than, than the average person realizes? Okay, so one of the things that's interesting is that for quite some time we've been kind of documenting housing costs, uh, and particularly housing cost burdens and how that's been increasing over time. There was particular growth in this across the whole country between 2000 and 2010, and it's kind of stayed consistent since then. Uh, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development established a benchmark uh, of determining people are housing cost burden if they're spending more than 30% of their household income uh, towards their housing costs. So that's generally the benchmark that's used uh, to look at housing cost burdens. Uh, and this is an important metric to look at because, you know, what people are doing is they're trading off between housing costs and consumption of all other things, right? So the more people are spending on housing, the less money they have to spend on all the other things that we require to, to live and be successful in life. Um, so a staggering statistic that falls within this is as of 2017, 88% of households below $20,000 who make uh, with household income less than $20,000 are, are housing cost burden. Um, that means our lowest income households are disproportionately spending a large share of their income on just housing alone. Mm -hmm. And what this means is on any given month, they're left with very little money for everything else, right? Is there an average number there that they're, like what percentage of their income they're spending? Or maybe the average it hides more than it gives yeah, away. Yeah, so we use kind of thresholds of, of, of 30% and then 50% for being severely rent burdened. I don't, I don't know the 50% number off the top of my head, but they're, they're fairly substantial. Um, and what that does is on any given month leaves the average household making less than $20,000 with well under $1,000 per month to cover all of their costs of everything, right? So a lot of these stories don't make it into the news very often. What we might hear, for example, is that millennials are challenged to, find, to be able to buy homes because home prices have gone up so much and that kind of thing. But what you're talking about is, uh, is are specific income groups that are facing challenges of do I pay my rent or do I buy food is what it sounds like to me. Can you elaborate on that? 
Yeah, exactly. So um, there is increasingly a lot of documentation, and the National Low Income Housing Coalition actually does a really wonderful study every year where they show kind of the average wage that would be needed to pay for the median rent in any given market and the disconnect between the wage people earn and the cost of the average available and affordable unit in their market. Uh, and so this reality that increasingly, particularly for the lowest income households, uh, there is just not enough affordable units. Uh, and the trade-offs associated with that could be quite dire, right? Um, you're deciding between housing and consumption of something else. Uh, you could be deciding between housing and homelessness, right? Uh, and what this does is it has direct implications for someone's individual economic performance, uh, for the outcomes of their kids. And increasingly, there's kind of a body of knowledge that uh, that is kind of connecting those issues of housing affordability and these broad set of outcomes we care about from a moral, uh, but even from an economic perspective. So when you when you dig into this, you start to see where, where the homeless problem is coming from in, in certain cities, particularly because that's where housing costs are higher, I guess, and rent costs. Um, what were some of the problems that minorities, particularly blacks, uh, face in securing housing and, and maybe... Uh, eventually we'll get to what some of the possible remedies are for those things. So at this point, there's a, a large body of literature looking at issues of systemic uh, discrimination in the housing market, right? The recent 50th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act uh, and the fact that a lot of data has become accessible through uh, a lot of new data techniques, namely actually the digitizing of of, of previous maps around redlining and, and mortgage credit lending uh, have really renewed a lot of conversation about the structural barriers uh, that minority households have faced with respects to access to home ownership. Right. Uh, That's a really interesting point. So new tools are giving us new insights here. Exactly. Exactly. And and those are really kind of unique opportunities to to really get away these old myths about what was driving some of these systemic differences, which I think for quite some time literature has shown those were myths. But increasingly, the evidence base shows that mm -hmm. there were structural barriers that minority households face across the board. This is access to credit. This is kind of steering to certain neighborhoods. Uh, this is even access to rental units in certain neighborhoods, right? Uh, this is uh, use rates within a given program. So in my own research, I show that uh, black households actually have a, a more difficult time using a voucher than white households. And this is something that's been supported in other, other literature Explain as well. Explain what a voucher is, please. So a voucher <laughs> is a, a subsidy provided to low-income households uh, that they can essentially used to purchase housing on a market. So uh, they go and rent a, a unit on the private market and the government agrees to pay a portion of that rent and the tenant pays no more than 30% of their income in that rent. So households apply for this through a local housing authority. Uh, they are vastly undersupplied. Uh, the number of people who income qualify for a voucher far exceeds the number of people who actually uh, are awarded the voucher to give perspective on that. Recently, there was a housing voucher lottery in the county of Los Angeles, uh, first time in a long time for them uh, because they were going through their old wait list. Uh, they suspected that something along the lines of 600,000 households were eligible for the voucher, roughly 170,000 households applied to be put on the waiting list for the subsidy. Of that, 20,000 were then randomly selected through a lottery to actually go on the wait list, and now they're kind of going through the wait list for that subsidy. Uh, so a high-demand subsidy, uh, in theory, it could be very helpful to residents, but we see through the evidence is that there's a lot of challenges with the program and how it's used, and particularly there are a lot of challenges along racial lines, and it highlights a lot of the existing discrimination that exists within rental markets. 
Is it fair to say that, I mean, what's been happening in the housing market, in most markets, not everywhere, but certainly major markets like New York, San Francisco, L.A., Seattle, uh, that the, um, the the appreciation in, in housing costs, mm-hmm. house prices, um, then creates a, a, you know, a bigger and bigger burden on those that are, uh, aren't earning the kind of incomes that allow them to get a foot in that market. So even that starter home is out of reach for many people. And then that also has implications for the rental market. Is, is that part of the problem? It's not just discrimination, which is a big enough problem, but the economics of it. Could you just like go into that a little bit? Yeah. So there's a couple of really important pieces connecting to what you're saying. One is that there's uh, increasing evidence about the undersupply of housing in most of these markets and how it's just difficult to develop. And I think so, your paper talks about zoning rules yep, and so exactly, forth. So let, exactly. Maybe we can get into all of that. Yeah. And so there's actually a, a wonderful index created here at Wharton, the Wharton uh, Land Use Index uh, that Joe Jerko created. Uh, and what it does is it kind of documents essentially all of the barriers around land use and zoning that that essentially could affect the development process and restrict development along the way. Uh, this gets formalized in processes that some of them are rational, a lot of them are highly irrational. Can we talk um, about like some specific ones so people have an idea concretely um, so, what, what the problem is and how these actually increase the cost of housing? Yes. So <laughs> an example of that is basically saying only single-family residential homes could be developed in an area, right? Mm-hmm. So by virtue of doing that, uh, you're restricting what can be developed in that area, and particularly in areas that are largely built out, you're essentially saying nothing else could be developed there. So the existing built-out single-family homes that are there, there's no additions to that beyond what exists already. Mm-hmm. So what that does is it creates an inability for that neighborhood to, to react to increased demand mm-hmm. for those units in that neighborhood because you can't actually build more units. Mm-hmm. And what that does then is it's drive up prices. And what it does is create more wealth for some of those existing homeowners, which creates an incentive for them in some ways, and in many ways, to want those restrictive practices because it benefits their kind of property and values along the way. It also creates sprawl right? and other issues, which is a whole other topic we don't need to get into. But I think there's, yep. there's a lot of implications from this. Exactly. And, and related to your other point, though, it also highlights the inequity of compounding inequity of gaps in homeownership, right? So if you have people who, through structure, Structural reasons were more able uh, or allowed to purchase homes 40 years ago uh, than other groups, and their home is appreciating by virtue of increased demand, a lot of which is a product of restricted development practices. What they have is a a large wealth-building tool that someone else did not have that compounds over time. And this isn't a product of them being uh, working harder or, or being smarter about where to buy things. It's them literally just having access that someone else did not have mm-hmm. that then allows them to have wealth that someone does not have. Just arriving at it. the market a couple years later can completely change your, your uh, prospects. Yep, exactly. Yep. Okay, so there's a, a lot of barriers here, and <laughs> yep. not least of which is discrimination, which you've outlined. So let's talk about uh, your some of your prescriptions in, in your briefing and and how they might help. Yeah, so there's a lot that we could do right now. And one thing that I highlight in the brief, and it's not uh, unique to me saying this in many ways, is the reality that in, in many ways on a federal level, we've lacked a broad vision for housing policy. For a very long time, we've been creating programs and modifying programs, but this kind of overarching vision of housing broadly across all sectors, not just single family, but single family and multifamily and how we think of things is something that we haven't had for quite some time. And what that does is it creates kind of an unevenness across programs and a lot of gaps along the way. Right? You say we haven't had for some time. 
Was there a time in the past when we did have it? Uh, I mean, you could argue that in the 60s, there were kind of broad visions for housing. Maybe in the 70s, there were some aspects of that. Okay. Uh, okay. But, but it, so but, we got away from it for whatever reason, and now you're arguing we need to get back to yeah, some of those things. Yeah, we need to get, because these things are, are largely structural. And mm-hmm. although one thing to keep in mind, though, is that there are a lot of existing programs and practices that are working or can work, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the idea of there's a lot of incremental things we can do, and there's a lot of kind of broader structural things we can do. Um, so one idea, for example, that's been floated around for quite some time, this isn't new to me, Ed Olson said it, uh, The recently Matt Desmond in his book Evicted brought it up, uh, is this idea of creating a, a universal safety net voucher, right? So we talked about vouchers already, but saying that we know that it's highly demanded and by virtue of it being a scarce resource, it actually creates negative incentives around the voucher program itself and a lot of issues with the program. So making it a universal safety net program where people essentially have that as a backstop against homelessness, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They have that resource at the disposal. They're not subject to a lottery, and they're also not subject to a use or lose scenario, right? Um, even within that program, there's a recent adjustment that was made to way the rents were calculated in the program to allow people to access higher opportunity neighborhoods. You're going to... You're going to need somewhere more housing supply to make all this work. Is that right? Oh, totally. So the voucher thing, in some ways, you could argue the universal piece is is a larger picture thing. The the rent limits is an incremental thing. But within this, there is kind of a broad need for a push to actually promote the development of more housing units. And uh, under the Obama administration, they created a toolkit to try to create incentives. Mm -hmm. A lot of people uh, rightfully argue that incentives alone won't actually do it uh, because there are large incentives for people not to do it. Um, Someone like Gavin Newsom recently took what a lot of people consider a very bold uh, statement, which is to essentially tie uh, uh, housing development goals to other support from the state, Mm -hmm. i.e. transportation money, things for roads, and like things like that and say, okay, well, if you're not going to meet this goal, then you don't get money from this other place as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there definitely is in this broader vision is kind of a view of what can a federal vision be around promoting development and how can both incentives and potentially even mandates be created to ensure that localities are actually meeting the demand for housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of your other prescriptions? Uh, some of the other prescriptions are, again, kind of a mix of incremental and uh, and, and larger uh, in a recent study that I conducted uh, with a colleague, uh, Constantine Contacosa at, uh, at NYU, uh, we looked at uh, energy cost burdens, right? And what we found, uh, not surprisingly, is low-income households are more likely to be energy cost burdens. Uh, what's interesting about that paper is we did modeling to show that what would be the impact on those rent burdens if you retrofitted those properties and essentially what would be the return for uh, for the owner of the property, uh, but also for lenders uh, to actually... Uh, uh, finance and, and go through the development process. And we show that there is actually an economic return there, right, mm-hmm. uh, to, to making this kind of investment. And there's a role for government to essentially create programs that promote this kind of investment, right, to share some of the risk associated with lending to small uh, multifamily owners uh, and to acknowledging that we have an aging housing stock uh, a lot of the that aging stock that is in poor condition is our affordable units, and that's a distinct opportunity to, one, uh, promote investment, but also to address things like energy cost burdens, uh, but also to reduce the greenhouse uh, emissions associated with our, our housing stock. Now, it's interesting. I think a lot of people, middle class and above, uh, wouldn't necessarily be 
aware of something like, oh, if you could save $50 a month in heating costs or, mm-hmm. or, or other utility costs, uh, that's a significant portion of some people's income and, exactly. and, and be, would be very meaningful to them in addition to having the, the, uh, the positive environmental effect that you talk about too. Totally. And to someone who $50 isn't all that significant as a share of their income, if it's an easy way for them to do something, mm-hmm. that's still money that they're rationally going to want to pursue, right? right? And $50 so, a month times 12 starts to be meaningful. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And insofar as there's a program and policies that mm-hmm. make it uh, easy to actually access that those cost savings, then you know that, that's something that's important and scalable. So in all of this, what are what would you say are some of the myths perceptions that the public has about housing in general. We've, we've talked about it a little bit, but I, you know, I think, I think a lot of this will be eye-opening for people that, that don't focus on this area. Uh, I, I think a couple things. So, so first is the idea that uh, housing cost burdens are a choice, right? There's a clear, well-documented undersupply of affordable housing across the country, right? Um, for households, again, making less than 20000 a year, only 1% of them are spending less than 20% of their income on housing, right? Only 1%. Uh, this is not a product of choice. This is a product of undersupply, right? So I think that's one thing. Uh, I think another thing to remember is that uh, these are important uh, from a from a moral, but also from an economic perspective, right? The implications of people not being able to afford their housing present uh, larger social costs, right? Because people are making dire trade-offs. It increases homelessness. It increases use of public resources. It increases deferred use of health systems that then leads to bigger medical problems, right? Uh, these things are a moral concern, but they also have real economic implications that affect us broadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and increasingly, there's a lot of literature that kind of connects us to the broader issues of, of regional development, right? Um, there's a lot of conversations and articles that always come up about people fleeing the most expensive metros for more affordable places. Uh, some of that is anecdote. Some of that is actual reality, right? And there comes a point where the kind of economic framework of cities, of metro areas, our main kind of economic drivers as a country, uh, start having issues when you have people facing these trade-offs, people dealing with the negative implications of housing affordability, uh, and then potentially leaving regions, right? Or Mm -hmm. staying and unfortunately uh, uh, having to suffer uh, through these kind of high cost burdens. Mm Uh, I would imagine providing more low-cost housing is is not a bad thing for an economy. Also, and, and from the perspective of it, would create jobs, and I mean, it does uh, Im- improve the uh, real estate values of a city and maybe their tax base. Mm-hmm. You know, you can get better schools from these things if you have more people able to to get into a home and pay taxes on it and so forth. And this isn't just low-cost housing, though, and that's an important, I guess, another mm-hmm. point is. Mm-hmm. Most low-income housing actually isn't government-owned, government-operated, government-subsidized. The large share of that are mom-and-pop owners who own just more affordable units, right? Mm -hmm. So that's an important thing to remember. And also to remember that the market's all connected, right? We need more affordable units for sure. We also need units at all parts of the market. We're talking about the middle-income housing. We're talking about even the upper-income because they're all reacting to each other. And there's ideas of filtering and trickle-down. And those don't solve all our problems. But to say that everything is kind of interconnected, Mm -hmm. right? And the city of Philadelphia, I I helped them last summer write their first citywide housing plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a 10-year housing plan. uh, And one of the things that the commissioner here really wanted was to acknowledge that a housing market is a broad market. Mm -hmm. It involves home ownership. It involves rental. 
middle. It involves high income housing, middle income housing, and low income housing. And those are all mm -hmm. interconnected in important ways. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't view this as strictly a low income problem, right? Mm -hmm. It's an affordable problem that permeates across the mm -hmm. income spectrum, but also is an affordability problem that is across the kind of price spectrum as well. Are there opportunities here for, for business to to work hand in hand with government in some way that, you know, that, that there are there some incentives for them to do that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in, in many ways, this is tied to building. This is tied to construction. This mm -hmm. is tied to economic activity uh, associated with the real estate, right? Uh, if you create that retrofit program that, on, that creates the ability for people to actually uh, finance the, the the redevelopment of their of their home or the rather um, to further invest in their homes, those are construction jobs, right? Those are if you allow a developer to develop more units, that's actual kind of economic productivity, right? This is uh, a real aspect of things where there is a lot for business to be involved in here. There's financing vehicles, right, where lenders can actually make a good return, right, on uh, on actually investing in these forms of investment. So there's a lot of economic opportunity and business opportunity associated with this. What haven't we covered here that would be important for our readers and listeners to know? Um, I think we talked a bit about discrimination, but I, I really want to kind of hone back on the idea of you know, one of the big things that the Obama administration did at the end of their, as his term, was really kind of make a push around fair housing and and push to the forefront the need for cities to actively address the fair housing needs. Uh, that's something that's been actually actively under attack by this administration. Uh, initially, you can argue passively, but now quite actively. Uh, and so I think we should acknowledge also that... Um, there's a need to address current problems, but there's also a really distinct, important need to acknowledge the history of what led to a lot of these problems uh, and the realization that we need to be thinking broad, critically and structurally about a lot of the things that have shaped the way cities look, the way people access housing, the way people access wealth. Uh, and I think um, I'm really encouraged by a lot of the fair housing advocates uh, uh, and what they're kind of pushing for and protecting for. And I'm hopeful that we'll see kind of a change of events going forward, because I do think that to me is one of the biggest aspects of, of housing policy that um, is going to be important for, for everyone going forward. Appreciate you coming in very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.